from a risk perspective, I'd say the biggest risk I'd say is is building AI without including domain experts. That's probably the biggest risk that you could you could have from an AI perspective. And unfortunately, it's all too common. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, welcome, welcome. Today it's episode 118. We're talking about defining autonomous transformation and avoiding pilot purgatory. Our guest today is Brian Evergreen, the Global Head of Autonomous AI Co-Innovation at Microsoft. Now, if that title doesn't quite make sense to you at the moment, well, you're in the right place because we're going to be defining autonomous AI in this conversation. We'll also be discussing strategies for getting new technology initiatives off the ground, whether that's digital transformation, machine learning, artificial intelligence, you name it. While this episode covers some really forward-thinking technology that can impact manufacturers, this episode has a lot of pragmatic tips for leading through any type of change or transformation. So here are three more specific things that you can expect from today's show. First, Brian gives us some baseline definitions around artificial intelligence and taking a human-centric approach to AI before diving into his story. Second, we spend a lot of time discussing autonomous transformation, opportunities and risks around AI, and some very specific tips for making sure your projects succeed, scale, and don't get stuck in the pilot phase. We do get into some good details here around machine learning, AI, and its adoption, but I think we did a good job of keeping it actionable and down-to-earth as well. Finally, at the time of this recording, Brian is writing a book. It's called Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. And if you're listening to this way down the line, like later in 2023, heck, it might already be out. But in the meantime, we'll hear about the writing process and some of the things that he learned along the way. To learn more about any of the topics we discuss, if you want to connect with Brian or access the book when it's available, you can do that over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 118. Or Brian is actually going to be one of the keynote speakers at ATX West coming up here in the next couple of months. If you're a regular listener of Manufacturing Happy Hour, you know that we were out there in 2022 recording podcasts, creating content. It is the West Coast Automation Show, and really, it's the first automation show to set the tone for the year ahead. It's taking place February 7th through 9th in Anaheim, California, 2023, and it includes the trade show, keynotes from folks like Brian, booth crawls, beer gardens, as well as the online smart event where you can start making meaningful connections with other industry leaders in advance of the live event. That's actually where I first connected with Brian last year. Anyway, ATX West 2022 was a blast, and no doubt 2023 will deliver another amazing experience. It's the epicenter of robotics and smart manufacturing technology and a great way to kick off the new year. To learn more and sign up, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ATX West to register today. And with that, it's time for our interview. Let's head out west and meet up with Brian Evergreen. Okay, so Brian, you you didn't need really any prep for this when I brought it up before the interview because you already knew I was going to ask you where would we be having a beer for this conversation. So pick your place. Where Where is it? And describe the spot for us. 
Well, it's certainly in the greater Seattle area. It's about 30 to 40 minutes, depending on who's driving from Seattle in Snoqualmie, Washington. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, and there's a place called the Woodman Lodge. It's temporarily closed right now, unfortunately, but it's been around since the early 1900s when it when this was a you know when Snoqualmie was a lumbering town, um, and um, it's got an, it's got that epic you know vibe. You, you, going in, you, you know, there's the way that the, the the scene is decorated, the way the lighting is, that you feel like you, you know you transported back to that time, and the drinks are phenomenal. All right. So today we're grabbing a theoretical drink in Snoqualmie. It's been I worked out there for a brief work stint like 10 years ago in the Seattle area. I don't remember Snoqualmie specifically. I think I do remember driving that direction for an outdoor activity while I was out there. Yep. That's the direction you probably would have headed. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's say we're hanging out there. We're transported back in time, but we have a very, let's say, future looking conversation today to have. So if we're there drinking our beers, I'm curious how you'd answer this question. Like you work in an area focused around autonomous transformation to a more human future. That's how it's described. How would you describe this concept in simple terms as if we're having beers with one another? So I think what I where I'd start is I'd say that Digital transformation has been and continues to be an epic era of transformation for society and for businesses and for individuals. Um, It sort of reshaped the landscape, so to speak. And autonomous transformation is the next era, the successor to digital transformation. Um, the, the, The network of systems that it takes to do a digital transformation to to effectively uh, leverage the technologies that you know cloud technologies for example uh, and you know high performance computing etc um, is different than the than the systems that would be necessary to appropriately leverage artificial intelligence internet of things digital twin robotics and augmented and virtual reality um, and we're seeing that in the data that 87 percent of machine learning models never make it into production and I think that's more of a the system problem than the actual technology. And so the work that I do is focused on um, helping organizational leaders move into that new era of uh, transformation. So digital transformation to autonomous transformation. I want to dig into the second half of, of that comment, though. What does it mean to have a more human future then if we're talking about this type of transformation? Great question. So I've been a part of a lot of discussions, you know, in my role at Microsoft and in previous roles with senior executives from some of the world's largest companies. And what we found is that when we often the conversation starts with how do we solve XYZ systemic societal problem? How do we guarantee there's no child labor in our supply chain? How do we, you know, make sure that we're having ethical sourcing from sustainable resource, you know, sustainable resourcing perspective. And regardless, even if we have senior level executive sponsorship, even when we have a great alignment of core capabilities and a great, what we think to be a great strategy for how we'd go about executing this partnership, for whatever reason, majority of these never make it actually into a funded initiative. And I, I see that as a somewhat of just the, the nature of the systems, less about the people, less about the intent, and more that the system that, that, that we're within right now is somewhat in, inhospitable to those kinds of initiatives. And so that's why I talk about, you know, with the, the fact that we need to redesign our systems anyway to accommodate these new technologies. It's an opportunity for us to create what I, what I like to call profitable good. Um, so it's good. And, and there's aligning in such a way that people in it, 
organizations are economically incented to fan it out, to be able to drive that true market change. Well, I like how we've incorporated the human side, the businesses doing good side into things. And we're going to get back into the conversation around autonomous transformation a little bit later. But I want to get some of your background first, right? You didn't just end up you know, in autonomous transformation. There was a path to get there. So maybe the first question before we go further back in your story is how did you get into AI, right? Good question. I, I don't know how far back to start. I'll, I'll share cliff notes from the farthest back is that I was an internationally competitive okay. best player. And then I studied music theory and composition in school. And while those might not seem like obvious paths to AI, both of them are systems thinking type of disciplines and with a lot of um, focus and a lot of practical you know, application that takes, takes a technical level of expertise. And so I think that when in, the, in around 2013 or 14, um, when I first started focusing on analytics as a, as a discipline, the, the way that you approach, the way you think about the application of, of analytics um, in, in business is very, it, it's a similar muscle in the brain uh, to what I had already developed with um, chess from a strategy perspective and the balance of creative and, and critical thinking, as well as music from, again, that balance of the science of music and tone and, and harmony, as well as the art of, of creating. And I think that the AI is very similar. Yeah, I, I actually find that less surprising than you might think, right? Like when you talk about chess, when you talk about music, maybe it's because a lot of the AI projects that I'm starting to see, there's a lot of art to them as well. So actually that that checks out quite a bit, right? You got the technical background, you got the artsy music background as well. Um, incredible stuff. So, well, I appreciate the Cliff Notes version. We are going to go back a little further now. Uh, something that jumped out in your profile is you've done a lot of different things, but I noticed you, it looked like you really started your career by co-creating Code to the Future. Can you tell us what that is? Absolutely. So when I, I mentioned that I was an internationally competitive chess player, and when I uh, was 12 years old, I had to decide whether to retire from chess or to basically quit school, be homeschooled, do chess kind of as a full-time gig. I, at the time, well, decided- hold, hold on, 12, 12 years old, is that what you said? Yes, yes. That's, I didn't realize how young you were when you were an internationally competitive chess player. That's astounding. <laughs> Thank you. It, it was a lot of fun. It was, you know, I, I, I traveled all over the place playing adults as well as children, other children, um, you'd be surprised. I mean, when you, if you've ever seen Searching for Bobby Fischer or more recently, The Queen's Gambit, like those, that, that is a whole world. And, um, you know, the, my first two students were actually a kindergartner and a first grader. Um, you know, I, I first learned when I was three. So people can actually start pretty young. Wow. Okay. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, I just, that stuck out. It's like, that's very young to be a pro at anything and let alone talk about retirement. The way you phrased it was top notch. <laughs> that's so. why I did the, the air quotes. But yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I decided I, I liked being around other kids at school and I, you know, and I like doing music and sports and things like that. So I, I decided to quit playing chess competitively and start teaching. And so then when I was 17, my brother and I founded a company, and that's the co-creation part, um, that initially was focused on just teaching chess as an after-school um, yeah, after activity. And um, yeah, by the time that I graduated college, we were in a couple hundred schools, and we, we sort of found that we could buy, that we could serve 
a lot of different types of schools. It was very meaningful because we, we pivoted from trying to teach kids to be national champions to focusing on um, creative and creative, creative and critical thinking skills. And, um, and then we realized that chess isn't the only vessel for that. And so then that's where we expanded. And hence, you see, if you see, look up Code to the Future, there's a focus on STEM, of which chess is just one potential vehicle for STEM learning. And so, yeah, it was, it was very meaningful work. And it was especially exciting when we realized that, well, we could work with schools that have Title I funding that we could then reach students that would normally never be able to, not necessarily never, but be less likely to be able to participate in a program like ours. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm uncovering aspects to your story that I didn't necessarily expect to hear in this conversation. And uh, lo looking after Code to the Future, I mean, just perusing your LinkedIn profile, you've been at Microsoft multiple times, Accenture, Amazon, UL, no shortage of big names and exciting companies. So, and I'm sure there's a story to all of these, but maybe the way to, to summarize is, is there a common thread to these roles or a common thread to your career? It's a good question. I'd say yes, yes and no. And so in, in terms of thread, I'd say starting with Accenture, I think that, you know, in terms of my first corporate job after Code to the Future, I focused a lot on and learned a lot about uh, strategy in the corporate environment. And, and that played well to my chess background and then uh, was exposed to analytics and got really uh, interested and then focused on, you know, building out analytics applications. Partway through my time at Accenture, I taught myself um, I was running an applications, an analytics project, sorry, an analytics project. And uh, I realized there was an opportunity to build an app that uh, would solve a customer or a client problem. And um, I couldn't get support to go funds to bring on other software developers to do it. And uh, I was already writing the SQL for the, from the analytics side. And so I thought, why don't I learn the Sean stack, right? Which is basically the mean stack, but SQL instead of MongoDB. And so um, it took me about three months, but got the initial application launched. And then I think for in terms of the thread um, of my career that you mentioned, for the next, I don't know, five years or so, there was a, a focus on that balance of analytics plus application development and bringing those insights into the point of decision instead of a separate dashboard and instead of a separate place um, and focusing truly on what's now been coined as decision intelligence, you know, what actually needs to inform the decision that's being made. And, um, and then, then that started to change when I had an opportunity to come to Microsoft and lead artificial intelligence strategy for the US, which was a sort of, again, a natural step. Um, but that did that did pivot where it was less about building out AI and 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 uh, you know applications and and analytics and and app, uh, applications that would be deployed you know from a software perspective to being more how do we you know partner with Fortune 500 leaders to determine their AI 2030 agendas and work together in surprising remarkable ways between Microsoft and those clients. Um, to help them achieve those. And so that was that was definitely a pivot, but there's still kind of that common, that's that thread through that. And I want to start asking you a little bit more about autonomous AI. I think one of the easy places to start would be, you know, hey, what are the risks around autonomous AI technology? And then we'll get into what the opportunities are, but let's let's bring it down and then we'll bring the audience back up after that. Absolutely. So in terms of risks, I... I I noticed uh, when, you, when you sent over some of the things, you know, that you were thinking about talking about, and, and I noticed I, it, it stuck out to me that you, you wanted to start with risks. Um, and I, I can see why. Um, so I think that um, from a risk perspective, the way that I tend to talk about autonomous AI is that 
The reason it's autonomous and what I mean specifically with autonomous AI is because it's in an environment where you cannot afford for it to be continuing to learn the way that traditional AI would. It needs to be closed looped, right? Just like a closed loop control system. Um, and so, you know, and, and yet it needs to account for noise and drift where possible. And so from a risk perspective, I'd say the biggest risk I'd say is, is building AI without including domain experts. That's probably the biggest risk that you could, you could have from an AI perspective. And unfortunately it's all too common. And so, um, but in terms of, in terms of actual physical risk, I'd say that if, if it's designed correctly, there's not a great a great risk associated with autonomous AI. I think that if if people use define autonomous AI differently than I do and, and say it's it's open, it's learning, it's continuing to learn the environment, it's continuing to take in new parameters, then there is a risk that it could, you know, potentially change what it's doing in such a way that it could cause waste or it could, you know, in the manufacturing context, right? Um, but if it's closed loop and it's truly autonomous in that sense, where it's, you know, just like an NPC or some other kind of um, controller, then I, I think that the risk is actually relatively low and maybe even lower than uh, some of the previous technologies that have been leveraged for that. Yeah, and, and I think this you're you're talking to an audience that all things considered probably views AI as a good thing, right? This is not right. the the doubters we're talking right. to, but nevertheless, I mean, I'm sure many people in the audience have their ideas of hey, what are the opportunities around autonomous AI? I'd love to hear your perspectives on you know, hey, where are there great opportunities around this? Great question. I'd say one of the biggest areas where there's an opportunity going into this next era of transformation, you know, autonomous transformation and autonomous AI, I would say is the ability for domain experts to build um, AI more directly. And so I think that if you look at the trends 100 years ago, industry experts held the budgets, made all the decisions you know, and then in the wake of the world wars and, um, there was, you know, the great recession, then there was this and shareholder primacy, then there was a, a pivot to business leadership as distinct from industry leadership. And then the last 30 years, IT has gone from the back room to the boardroom, right? And so there's these different factions, as I call them, um, that are all, I think, vying for, and I, I think often in good faith of saying, if, if I have the, the budget or if I make these decisions, that's what's, I, I know what's best, right? Um, and so I think that, in terms of the opportunity, I think that autonomous AI and some of the platforms that are coming out now and some of the, the new frameworks and approaches are an opportunity for those factions, again, so air, air quotes here, to come together and say, how do we actually solve this and in, in these kinds of um, problems in our in our context in a, in a meaningful domain-based, you know, combined together, fused with the technology as opposed to distinct? Um, and part of that is that a lot of these technologies don't require, for example, historical data. So you, you have to start with the expertise of, of the experts in the environment, the operators and the engineers. And so you don't have that same risk of somebody coming in and saying, just give me your data. Like, let's just instrument everything. Give me all your data. I, I'll just figure this out. I got this. Um, instead, it, it starts with expertise. And so, uh, and there's a whole new swath of use cases, especially to the point of autonomous AI, where it can be exported and run offline. And so you don't need to be you know, somewhere where you're relying on cloud connectivity or, or even internet at all, being able to have that kind of, um, you know, there's a whole new swath of use cases that were not possible and haven't been possible in the machine learning paradigm because it does require so much historical data. And we know how hard it can be to, to access that data from historians and so on. Um, 
and so that are that are now possible because it does start with that expertise and um and there's new new methods of of uh, approaching them so that was great in fact one of the questions i have here as i was recalling our conversation i think you and i chatted probably 6 months or so ago just like an intro discussion and we were both involved in uh the ATX West show in 2022. I think that's where I first came across your name. Right. Yes. But one, one of the things I had in my notes from that conversation was you talked about why it's important to have AI created by engineers and not just data sciences scientists. And I think you've maybe been hinting at this a little bit, but I'd love for you to directly answer that question. So, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is there's 10,000 as of, I think, 2018 or 2019 Gardner data. There are 10,000 data scientists in the world that could build real-world AI. And if you think about the number of organizations in the world that want to use AI, that's there's already a problem there, right? Um, and then there's 10 million um, software engineers in the world. And then there's 100 million domain experts or um, SMEs, often with advanced degrees. And, um, and so you have a little bit of a bottleneck problem, right? Even if you have the best of the best of, of data scientists, you still have so much more domain expertise than you could possibly funnel through that team. And so I think being able to build um, more directly and build the, these kinds of AI and having tools and platforms that allow these experts to build a AI and harness some of that technology where it's the, you don't need to know R Python, that, that part's abstracted from you and you can just focus on um, building out the, the, um, the real world application, I think is, is somewhat of a paradigm shift and creates more of a hub and spoke model where data scientists can then focus on product innovation, bleeding edge stuff that no one's ever done before. And engineers can focus on operational inno innovation and, and partner with data scientists for the input and the output. But in terms of owning that core piece, um, be able to have more direct um, control. And so I think that's going to be an important paradigm shift. And I think it'll be it'll be interesting to see, you know, like like I mentioned before, 87% of machine learning models never make it into production. I'm curious how that'll how that'll change as these technologies become more adopted and as as um, the ability to build AI becomes more directly um, in, in control of these engineers. You know, you've mentioned that 87% stat a couple times now, and I have to ask, how much opportunity are people leaving on the table right now? If 87% of them don't make it to the floor, is it because they didn't work or is it because they're like concerned about scaling or concerned about putting it into use? Great question. So I think that's a two-part question. So I'll answer in terms of opportunity. I think the economic opportunity that is you know, the latent potential right now is is enormous. I think all of us know that. People know they need to be thinking about if they have the ability or they have the budget or bandwidth to be thinking about these technologies. In terms of why they don't necessarily make it into production, which I think is the second part of your question, I'd, I'd say it's a, there's a number of reasons. And I think it starts with, you know, when there's a misalignment between the, the technologists and the um, industry professionals and, and or the business as well, because sometimes things get scrapped because it didn't get developed on schedule, for example. Um, I think another one is that the more um, the more differentiating a technology is, the longer it takes, right, the higher level of complexity and the longer it takes, the more risk you're taking on by by diving in and exploring that if you wait until it's at a point of ubiquity where it's well known, you could know exactly how long it'll take and what it'll cost, that's not differentiating. Now you're just playing catch up. And so I think that's another interesting paradigm when it comes to some of these bleeding edge technologies is, um, is 
folks that are trying to approach a, a, a newer technology the way they would approach, you know, today, if you want to build, uh, you know, web, a website, it's fairly well known exactly how long it'll take, exactly what skills will be needed, et cetera. But if you're trying to build something more bleeding edge, you're, you're kind of pioneering into a new space. And the same way, and an analogy I really like is the same way that today I can, I can route and even based on current traffic, I can see how long it would take me to drive from Seattle to New York. But if you look back in the past, you would know, okay, I know directionally I'm headed in the right direction. I'm aiming for certain milestones. I'm checking to see if this still makes sense. Right. And I think, I think that, um, bleeding edge technology projects, um, need, we need to change the way that we think we can't approach them the same way that we'd approach a proven, you know, well-known ubiquitous technology because it, it's just not the same. And, and that, I think that's a big part of why projects get scrapped. Great piece of advice for the manufacturing leaders out there. A second thing I want to ask, because as, as you talk more and more, this reminds me of digital transformation, right? And you talked about sometimes there's misalignment between the technologists, the business, the people involved. And in at least in digital transformation, we talk about how important it is to have information technology and operations technology in the same room working together, making sure they, they both understand the goals. If I'm a manufacturer and I have an autonomous AI initiative, right, who are the different people that need to be aligned or should at some point be in the same room? Great question. And I'll say that the first thing I'd recommend to manufacturers that are looking at not just autonomous AI, but any kind of bleeding edge, like any industrial metaverse related types of projects. First thing I'd say is that you should build a pilot purgatory steamroller is what I like to call it, which is get the executives from IT, OT, operations, like get these leaders together in a steer co where they're setting the charter together. They're setting the milestones. They're setting the stage gates, the go, no go decisions. And they have a, a very you know coordinated rhythm and accountability so that when there's a blocker from any one of these different groups or factions, as someone could say, um, they're able, it's able to be raised to this, this group that has that shared goal, right? And, and that level of executive sponsorship. I think a lot of times people try to say, okay, well, let's have a, you know, let's, let's try that down, down at this level. The operational director is going to explore this. And then even when the technology beats the benchmark that it was aiming for, it, 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 it that there, there can be the question of how do we raise it from that to actually putting something into production to actually scaling across the factories. Um, and so I think that starting with that pilot purgatory steamroller with regardless of which technology or new, new initiative you're going to drive is essential. And I think also having a voice in the room from a legal perspective, because there are considerations, um, especially in unionized environments, as well as from an HR perspective, because these technologies are going to change the way that people work. And I think that having HR involved up front instead of informed, you know, at the very la last, you know, step instead saying, yeah. okay, even if it's just a nominal change to the way people work, okay, well, how are we going to communicate that change? Does that change our incentives? Does that change? Like, how do we make this, um, you know, something that's, that's perceived as awesome by the, by the frontline workers, as opposed to something that they're afraid of. Um, so that's, and, and, you know, they say one thing we know at Microsoft, it's a core part of our transformation that we've gone through is that uncertainty registers in the brain um, the same in the same spot and they, they've done the neurological studies as physical pain and so there's this tenant of get bad news out fast and so i think that at the onset of implementing one of these projects if you let frontline workers know up front hey this is going to change your job in these three ways just right off the bat even if that's something that they might not necessarily like or be excited about 
you can also say, and and these are the types of new opportunities that we're seeing. We're going to be investing in drone technologies, and we're going to need drone operators, or we're going to be investing in you know whatever it might be. Um, then I think then you have a much higher chance of these technologies, um, these initiatives being successful. Wow. At at risk of avoiding hyperbole, that might have been one of the best pieces of advice we've gotten on this show in the past year, you know, or ever. I mean, the way you describe it as a pilot purgatory steamroller, not just for an autonomous AI initiative, but anything that's cutting edge. I mean, what an easy way to think of that for manufacturers to get rid of one of the things that ultimately seems to block most, you know, initiatives that could be great, right? It's just getting stuck in that area. So get the right people together. As we wrap up this AI portion of the conversation, I have to ask you, you know, you mentioned use cases earlier. What are some use cases for autonomous AI in manufacturing right now? And can you share a story as to how a manufacturer has been leveraging this today? Great question. So some use cases in manufacturing for autonomous AI. Um, I'll, I'll start at the broadest strokes and then funnel down. So the broadest strokes, what I'd say is that you have use cases where you don't have historical data per se, because autonomous AI doesn't replace um, machine learning or, or I guess traditional AI, which sounds funny to say, because it's still relatively new um, in terms of actually being applied in the real world as opposed to theoretical. But um, but I'd say, and machine teaching doesn't replace machine learning per se. Um, sometimes it can be a faster path, um, not to, you know, drill off into that side of things. But um, more so what it does is it unlocks new use cases. And so one example that I think is kind of interesting is that, um, with one of our, with one of our customers and our partners that we've worked with, um, there was a, an operator that there were nine different sounds on a CNC machine that when they heard that sound, they would go make an adjustment to the machine, right? To the settings. And, uh, this is a great example where, you know, machine learning, you, you wouldn't have the historical data to try to solve that problem. So, what what once we understood from that expert of what what it was that he was doing, we realized okay, well let's actually document what are these sounds, and then let's try to instrument for them, and then let's train the machine based on this person's expertise that when they hear that sound or when they hear these combinations of sound, um, this is the decision you know that can, that needs to be made or the control action to to put it more directly, and so we were able to develop that. Um, and, and in relatively short order, right? And so it's a new type of use case. You just can't necessarily address the same way in the machine learning paradigm. Um, another one that I think is probably even more um, a better example would be um, in terms of uh, calibrating a machine for a specific process that sometimes can take months, right? Um, in, in the autonomous AI paradigm, when when you start with the expertise of how an engineer would calibrate a machine, and then you combine that with the power of uh, deep reinforcement learning. So um, you have like a first principle simulation or a data-driven simulation, depending on the process, but in this case, it's a machine. So first principle sim of like, this is the, the true to physics simulation of the machine. And then we um, overlay that with the way that the expertise of how the operator works with that machine and how the engineer would calibrate that machine. Then that's the bounds within which the reinforcement learning can then go test stuff in simulation in a safe way. Um, and it can learn like, for instance, with the um, grasp and stack, um, you know, approach that's very common for benchmarking, by adding that human expertise up front, it was able to, we've been able to prove um, the ability to learn 45 times faster than the deep mind approach, which is more just raw reinforcement learning. It's a, it's a layer on top of reinforcement learning, right? That's applied. Um, and so 
I think that's, you know, those are a couple examples. Um, and then one last one that I'll share, which isn't in manufacturing, but I think it speaks to the power of, um, of, the, of this technology that I think is exciting, is um, Bell Flight in, in terms of the way that they look at their drones. They used to land based on uh, GPS technology, but, te- but the connectivity isn't always there. And so we were able to partner with pilots and say, let's put the, the brain of a pilot. Like when the, when the pilot's looking at their different, you know, the different signals and they're looking at the, um, you know, the, the, the altitude and all these other factors, what do they do with the pitch and the yaw, the way, you know, in that literal moment and then train based on, on that expertise. And then now it can be exported and deployed autonomously to those brain or to those drones without needing any internet connectivity whatsoever. And they can just land autonomously without needing, um, you know, without needing any human in the loop or, or internet connectivity. And so those are a couple of examples just to kind of speak to the art of the possible uh, of this of this technology. Yeah. And, and as you've been talking through this, you've mentioned machine learning a couple of times. And I know I'm sure there's a manufacturer out there listening to this being like, oh, gosh, I just started figuring out a way to leverage machine learning. Now I've got autonomous AI. So I, I want to ask a really down to earth question. When is the right time f- for a manufacturer to start looking at this, right? Like with any technology, it's great to have it, but there's got to, you got to have the right people and processes in place as well. Great question. And I'd, I'd say um, something that will hopefully be relieving for the manufacturing leader that is thinking the thing that you said, right? Of like, I just started thinking about or learning about or implementing a machine learning um, solution. So, um, so it's a two part. I'd say one is that this is this doesn't necessarily replace machine learning. There are use cases that when people approach us and say we want to use autonomous AI for this, or we want to approach this from a machine teaching perspective, we say actually this is better served um, by a machine learning approach, right? Um, so I, I wouldn't say that it replaces or that you know, or that the digital that it's a, that it's a linear transition from through digital transformation to autonomous transformation. Um, for example, that the fact that it doesn't require latency or internet doesn't require historical data. So you don't have to upload tons of data to the cloud in order to get started either. Um, and so that means that use cases and approaches that that just weren't possible in the past are are possible now. So in terms of getting started, what I'd say is um, in terms of the right time, uh, I, I'd say that really depends on you know your outlook or your perspective as a business leader. So if you're in a space where um, you know you are at at risk of being disrupted in any way, which frankly is probably everybody to some degree, I'd say, you know, looking into machine learning, machine teaching, autonomous AI, et cetera, is is important to keep, if anything, just to keep aware of what's going on in the space, what capabilities, what are the price points in terms of get bids, right, from from firms that would be hands-on keyboards and building this out for you of what the outcomes would be, you know, getting a bid is free, right? And, and what would the outcome would be and how long it would take them to do it, calculate, you know, the estimated ROI. And if that math doesn't work right now, okay, no problem. But at least you're aware. And you might see that the project length and the cost goes down over time. Um, you can also create surprising partnerships with firms by saying, you know, by leveraging balance of trade or leveraging the fact that they're trying to demonstrate the power of their technology or their consulting abilities and say, you know, I really, you know, we know we'd be a great use case for this. We know that, you know, we'd be a lighthouse in this industry. How, how can we think about, you know, um, the scorecard, or, you know, the, the balance between our two organizations in a way to make this happen um, that might be different than the traditional approach? 
Well, I'm just going to say this. I will have ways to connect with you in the show notes as well for the curious person that's interested in exploring this further to maybe track you sure. down on LinkedIn to to start having this conversation as well. Because yeah, we're this is certainly probably one of the further reaching topics we've talked on this show, but you've given a lot of great advice in terms of, hey, whether it's digital transformation, autonomous transformation, these are the things you need to do to set yourself up for success in evaluating these new technologies. And you have a book on this topic coming out in the future as well. It's called Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. You've really dialed in that brand there. It all feeds off of that (laughs) that stem. But, uh, you know, when did you decide to start writing a book on this? Great question. So um, it's interesting. I'd always I'd always enjoyed writing. I actually wrote a, you know freshman novel when I was uh, in my early 20s and uh, decided not to pursue publication. So I'd always enjoyed writing. Um, and what, what happened was actually Wiley reached out to me, um, the publishing house, um, and they said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book about autonomous AI? Um, and, I, and I basically said, well, I have a colleague um, that, that, you know, I have colleagues that are writing books on that space from a technical perspective. Um, and Based on my work, based on my experience, I think it makes sense maybe for me to write more on the business side. Um, and so I came up with a proposal back to them of what I would, you know, what I think would be best for me to write about. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't really think much of it. I, I you know, I, I didn't know necessarily that they would opt in, but they did. And so then that obviously kicked off momentum on my side. And I, I decided that, okay, then the best way to, to learn in terms of, because this is a new era. And it's, you know, yet to be really defined and fleshed out. The best way to learn is to, uh, to teach. And so, um, but I also started the book from a, I, I tried to start from a more of a Malcolm Gladwell approach of not assuming more of it as a reporter in the first sense, because I knew the problems that I wanted to try to go solve. Um, and so I thought I'm going to just go out and interview, you know, leaders from across industries and at different altitudes and academia and public and private sector, et cetera. And initially just take in a lot of information. And then as I journeyed through the, the writing process and developing the frameworks and so on, then it was giving feed, you know, get, getting feedback on some of these. Um, and that's, yeah, that's been my approach. And uh, it's been a, it's been a really powerful learning experience for me. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it, you know, that the outcome will be um, a, a good learning experience for, for those who choose to buy it. I was going to say, not to give any spoilers since the book isn't out yet, but in terms of the writing process, right? This isn't just the world according to Brian, right? You've done a lot of executive interviews to to learn more. Are there any any that stick out in your research or writing process where you learn something new? You're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that going into this. It's a good question. Um, absolutely. So, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, there's this quotation and I I used to think it was attributed to Mark Twain, but then someone said it wasn't. I don't know who it actually is attributed to at this point, but the quotation that every every person is my better, and to that end, I learn. Sorry, every person is my better in some respect, and to that end, I learn of them. Um, and so I'd say that for me, um, this process has been learning that every single interview, right? Where the, even you know colleagues at Microsoft working in a very similar space. They're, you know, they've taught me things that I hadn't shown me ways I hadn't thought about things in the past over to, um, you know, executives from the, um, you know, from various customers and partners that we work with and some that we don't, uh, frankly, that don't work with Microsoft, because I think it's easy to stay within your ecosystem. And I wanted to get some other perspectives as well. And so that's been really, really powerful. So, but specifically to answer your question, I'd say there's two that three that stand out. One is, um, 
Seth Godin was one of the people that I interviewed um, for the book, and and uh, it kind of turned into a writing coaching session, and he he challenged most of my assumptions, and it was extremely powerful. Um, a really really great time, um, and probably you know some of the best. 25, 30 minutes I've ever spent. Um, a second one would be Roger Martin. If you're familiar with Roger Martin, um, again, challenging so many assumptions and also just, um, such an incredible systems thinker. Um, and, uh, and then the third I'd say would be, um, man, it's hard to, it's hard to choose one. Um, but I really enjoyed, um, uh, my discussion with, um, Andreas Maurer. I don't know if you're familiar with Andreas. He's, a uh, He's in uh, in Germany. He works for uh, Bosch, the CTO of their building uh, group, and um, that was just an extremely fruitful discussion. And uh, he talked about creating an ontology for business organizations and the way that you fan processes and, and change throughout the business. And um, some really insightful thoughts there. Yeah, another another piece of advice for the audience: if you ever get a chance to talk to Seth Godin, I would absolutely turn that into a writing coaching session. Milk milk that discussion for all it's worth. <laughs> so, no, this is this has been great. You know, I'll I'll have links to connect with you over in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. So that when when the book comes out, people will be able to find it. I know it's coming out here in the future, but. Who knows when someone's listening to this, uh, you know, handful of months down the line in the future, it might already be out because people will be listening to this for a long time. Um, as as we wrap up, I since this is the first time we got to go back to this, since this is the first time I've had a youth chess prodigy on the show, <laughs> I have to ask when you're traveling, like, is there a story that sticks out from that or like a moment where you're just getting opened up to the world at such a young age traveling around? I'm curious if there's a moment in your memory that sticks out there? Cause it's just something that I don't even think I can even imagine what it would be like. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, th- it's funny. Um, the one that sticks out is probably not the one you'd expect, which is that, um, when I was traveling to, so I, I grew up on the West coast and had a fairly, you know, my, um, basically I've lived in every major city on the West coast at this point. Um, and, and, I had family from the Midwest, but I'd never been back there. And so some of my travels, when they led me into the Midwest, um, it was a really interesting experience noting, um, like in Columbus, Ohio, for example, there were street sweepers that would come through every single night, you know, these automated machines, I believe, or trucks that would come through every night and they kept their streets extremely clean. Or I would go to there, I would notice, cause I think I, as a child, right. I would notice these little things that, um, that then over time, you know, accrue to an understanding of the, the difference in culture, even at such a minute level across every place you go. Um, and I think it gave me a sense. I think I had always had a lot of confidence in the good and in the intelligence of people around the world um, at a very early age, regardless of their background, regardless of where they're from, what language they speak. Um, I, I think that was probably one of the most powerful takeaways from that experience. Yeah, it's it's funny. A lot of those Midwestern experience or Middle America experiences seems to come up when I'm asking for like something that I expect to be exotic, but turns out it's what you know. Because I'm I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I lived out in California for a while. I've traveled, so I've kind of seen it all, right? But it's uh, there are those I don't know, just basic down to earth experiences that that end up solidified in your mind. So. Well, Brian, it's been awesome talking to you today. I knew this conversation could probably springboard into a couple different directions, and I'm glad it did. But despite all the ground we covered, is there anything you wish I would have asked you that that we didn't touch on? It's a good question. Um, no, I, I mean, I, 
there's always more that we could talk about and maybe we'll actually grab, you know, a drink in person sometime at, um, maybe when the Woodman opens up, I'll let you know. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed this discussion tremendously and appreciate it. Likewise, likewise. Yeah. When the Woodman does open up, that sounds like a, a good reason to get back out to the Northwest. It's been a little bit. What is the best way con- uh, to connect with you and the work you're doing in the autonomous AI space? The easiest way is LinkedIn. That's my primary platform at this point. Um, and then that I leverage in working outside of my, you know, outside of my email. So uh, anyone who wants to connect with me, feel please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn anytime. Sounds good. Well, I will have links to that in the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And Brian, thanks so much for jumping on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. And thank you, Brian, for jumping on today's show. Also, big thanks to the crew over at ATX West for ultimately bringing Brian and I together to make this episode possible. Like I mentioned, Brian and I met last year through the conference, and once I started collaborating with the ATX West folks again, Brian was at the top of the list for potential guests for this episode. As always, if you want to learn more, if you want to connect with Brian, if you want to access Brian's book, whether it's pre-ordering or depending on when you listen to this, it might already be out. Either way, links for all of those things are over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 118. Alternatively, if you want to learn more and meet Brian, he's actually going to be taking what we spoke about today a step further in his ATX West keynote, Clearing the Digital Fog, the First Step of Autonomous Transformation. From what I understand, Brian has detailed out four steps of autonomous transformation that you can read about in his book, and this is step one. So yeah, head to ATX West to learn more. It's February 7th through 9th, 2023 in Anaheim, California. I had a blast there last year, and as we gear up for the event, I'd highly encourage you to attend as well. You can start connecting with manufacturing leaders that will be there in advance through their smart event. That's online. And once you get there, you can experience the booth crawls, the beer garden. That's my personal favorite. And of course, the show floor that will be the epicenter of robotics and smart manufacturing technology. You can learn more and register at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash ATX West. And that's a wrap. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.